Most of your stuff from Blackwater got saved. Everything apart from my money. Oh, don't remind me. Well, we can always make more money. We're gonna have to. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast for December 27, 2019. Another one of these quick episodes. If you want this one to go seven hours, I'm just letting you know you're in for a disappointment because nothing's happening. We got a little bit of news. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the fact that Elizabeth Warren is singing the same song as Red Dead Redemption, or at least that clip that we played at the beginning of the show, because she might be in some money trouble. Ooh, very interesting that we have a little bit of financial turbulence for Elizabeth Warren. I got some words for the DNC and their threshold for the January debate. Uh, And then beyond that, we got a lot of evergreen stuff. Also, of course, we have an interview today about how each of our parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, eventually evolved to the political ideologies that they hold today. It was not always the case that the Democrats were for what they are right now and the Republicans were for what they were right now. And if you think it's as simple as some sort of party switcheroo sometime in the mid-70s, then, you know, you're in for some education. You've got some learning to do. But first, let's talk about this Elizabeth Warren thing. Here's the email that went out yesterday. So far this quarter, we've raised a little over $17 million. That's a good chunk behind where we were at this time last quarter. Elizabeth Warren finished the third quarter raising $24.6 million. That placed her second to Bernie Sanders. Now, what I find interesting about this is the way that she's messaging here. Because we have seen, well, all right, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me take a step back. Number one, all fundraising on some level is crying poverty. The way that people give money is because they believe that their cause is behind. They believe that their cause is being left in a lurch, and the thing that I can do right now is to authorize my credit card to give five, ten, fifteen, a hundred and fifty, three thousand dollars, right? That that's that's always what it is. That's the reason why you see all these fundraising emails that uh, all have these very dour subject lines, stuff like the the opposition is outraising us, or we really need your help. Like that's the reason why all those, you know, that that psychology exists. But we've specifically seen the idea that hey, I gotta raise X amount of money, or I'm gonna drop out. From two candidates, Cory Booker and Julian Castro, both of which have their campaigns currently on life support. Elizabeth Warren, who has been exclusively reported here, suffered from the big structural Bailey curse. All right. She has fallen off an absolute cliff ever since that gigantic inflatable monstrosity was unleashed upon the 2020 campaign. Big Structural Bailey has revealed big structural problems in Elizabeth Warren's race to the White House. 
And here's part of it. Number one, she really, God, does she know how to overthink a problem? First, she releases this weird budget that people make fun of. And then, because people are making fun of her weird budget for Medicare for All, she then decides that she's going to back away from it. And since then, her poll numbers have fallen. I joke about the big structural Bailey thing, but like that's really where it is. If she's not going to be more electable Bernie, I don't know if she has another path to victory. And now that she's backed away from uh, Medicare for All, I don't know if she can go home again. Unless she absolutely just reverses course and says, hey, look, I've heard you. I thought I was going to be careful. I thought I was going to be cautious. Screw that. We're going all in. Day one, Medicare for all. Unless she's going to do that, I don't know if she can get this back. I also think she's lying about her $17 million. I mean, let's be let's be clear here. Uh, campaign fundraising emails are not exactly, you know, peer-reviewed research papers. You can get a little fuzzy with exactly what's going on in a campaign fundraising email, and I believe she probably has more than $17 million raised so that when New Year's Eve happens and the end of the fourth quarter is over, she'll be able to say, oh my God, look how much we raised after we put that email out. Because that you have to do that. Like That's, that's a non-negotiable. You can't put out an email saying we're going to get blown out on fundraising and then not have a good fundraising number. So cheating a little bit on exactly where you are, I think, is part of the game. But let's go ahead and take a look at these Iowa polls. According to Real Clear Politics, Warren, who at one point led not too long ago, you know, before. You know, all that. She is now fourth, according to the Real Clear Politics average, at 16% behind Biden, behind Sanders, behind Buttigieg. But let's talk about early state polls. Because Tom Perez and the DNC, in their infinite wisdom, decided that that was going to be the metric that and individual donations. So you could prove that he had a grassroots effort, that that was going to be the way that the debate stage would be sorted out. And to a certain extent, I think that was very helpful when you had 20 some odd people running. But now you, you have basically one stage where people are going to be talking. I think about seven people, which were there for the last debate was a good number. I think everybody kind of was heard. And this is what a stage this early in the process should look like. I understand that we are into, for some people, the third calendar year of a presidential campaign. We're about to enter the third year on the calendar that they are working to be president of the United States. But still, this is early. The DNC should not be making these decisions. And that's what I think they did because they raised the threshold going into January. But here's the problem. There's not enough polls that are coming out and and specifically uh, with the early states where theoretically a campaign could absolutely gain traction. You've seen time and time again, specifically in the Democratic Party, somebody that does well in, in Iowa 
catapult themselves forward nationally. Same with New Hampshire. But there have been no new polls in Iowa since the Iowa State University poll on the 16th. That's about a week. It's been about a month since we've gotten one from Nevada, and New Hampshire hasn't had one either. I think this is a problem for the DNC, especially if a candidate like, I'll say it, Andrew Yang does not make this debate stage. That is the kiss of death for a campaign. You have to justify why you're in it. Now, granted, somebody who doesn't make the January debate has a little bit less of a time where they need to pretend that they're still relevant because then we're going to have votes in Iowa and then we're going to separate the wheat from the chaff. But I, I greatly, greatly believe that there is room for disagreement with Tom Perez and the DNC not keeping the debate thresholds to where they were either closer to November or keep them same in, uh, the same in December, understanding that there's not going to be a lot of polls that are going to come out over the Christmas holiday. They only announced these thresholds like a week ago, and they candidates have until January 10th to qualify. There's not going to be that many polls that come out. Just a reminder, candidates need four polls with at least 5% support from a group of qualified pollsters. So if there's barely any polls coming out, then there is certainly a lesser share of those that are going to be a from the blessed pool of polls that the DNC has put out there. Right now, we have Biden, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar that have all qualified. Yang's got one qualifying poll. Steyer's got two. Now, Yang has already cleared the donor criterion, but I, I just I just think this is a bad look. This is a really bad look. Again, I'll reiterate this one more time. My problem with this is you are killing your ability to make stars of your losers. Your losers should be big. So when they endorse your winners, the winners look bigger. You do yourself no favor by removing people off that stage early. A reminder that Kirsten Gillibrand hasn't uh, endorsed anybody. She's just a dork, a dork who wasted money. I don't get it. I don't. Anyway. Politics! Hey, folks, if you want to support this show, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com uh, and you can be a part of a grassroots movement for independent political media. I'm out on the road, baby! Hell yeah! Uh, I'm, I'm in Iowa. I'm in Nevada, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you guys this: we've seen some movement, fundraising wise. I mean, I'm starting to think that you guys might get me to go to New Hampshire. They, you might get me to go to South Carolina. If you want to be a part of that, if you really want to put me on the road in the same way that every major media outlet's gonna be on the road, well, you can do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We've seen some big money moves on there for some big money players. And I, for one, appreciate it greatly. I know that a lot of folks had to tighten up their belts with the holidays. And now everybody's uh, staring down these credit card bills like they're, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a thug at the end of the alley looking for his money. But if you, if you got a little extra Christmas coin or Hanukkah coin, Kwanzaa coin, 
in your pocket? Eh, you want to chuck it my way to ensure that we have the best, most comprehensive coverage come primary season? Well, it's only one place to go. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Hey, here's some other news. Raise the Dead, of course, is my brand new podcast. We got an episode out this week. I put it up early so people could listen to it on their way home for Christmas. But if you want to know how this story ends, you can go ahead and get the ebook of transcripts right now. The book also includes a bonus uh, episode, uh, I guess a chapter in an ebook, but it's, it's an episode of uh, Raise the Dead all about the Chicago mob and Frank Sinatra and the moments that they all intersected before the 1960 election. Head on over there, raisethedeadpodcast.com. Scroll down. You'll see the ebook there right on the front page. Pick it up and support the show and read about the mob. The audiobook's coming soon. I had to put the ebook up before the audiobook. But uh, if you want to support both, then uh, go ahead and pick up the ebook now. All right, uh, let's get back to the show. Politics! My guest today is Hans Noel. He's an associate professor of government at Georgetown University and the author of Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America and a co-author of The Party Decides Presidential Nominations Before and After Reform. And we are going to talk all about the formation of our modern political parties, ideologies, and how they got there. But first, let's welcome to the show. How you doing, Hans? Great. Thanks for having me. Okay. So this is uh, obviously something that has affected all of us. And uh, I've recently done a bunch of research into, you know, the uh, mid, uh, you know, 1950, 1960 era. And it, it has always struck me how much the parties and ideologies seem to have shifted in, in sometimes dramatic, sometimes slight ways. So let's let's begin here. Uh where do uh, our modern political parties ideologies kind of really start? And we can we can go party by party, but let's say the the the, the Democrats if if we were to describe uh, the mainstream democratic ideology today, where does it get its origins? Well, I mean, you know, you can go back uh, a long way and you can you know trace the evolution of ideas and they're always building on something. And so, you know, depends a little bit on where you want to start. But, sure. you know, referencing around the middle of the century is, is probably a pretty good place. Um, before, you know, even before, say, uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, um, the, the, there was a sort of a transformation in um, what the Democratic Party was about and, and relatedly what sort of the left was about. Before that, mostly um, people who were interested in or trying to help the little guy were uh, concerned the government was hostile to that and wanted to, you know, prevent the government from stepping on farmers and stepping on uh, on small uh, workers and taking away their money and giving it to, to you know, wealthier or more successful uh, people. That was the, the concern that, say, Jefferson had. And there was a transformation uh, in that in the in the progressive movement where progressives um, and I like to trace this to to uh, Herbert Crawley, who's writing at the sort of turn of the century. Um, uh, started saying, well, what we could do is we could, you know, try to use uh, government to the advantage of people who are struggling and are having trouble. 
Um, and so uh, Crawley uses the language of um, uh, Jeffersonian ends, but Hamiltonian means, the means of, the, of a stronger government to, to do this. And so this is a, a process that's starting to happen. But for um, most of the beginning of that process in the sort of the populist, or sorry, in the progressive era, the progressive uh, movement, um, mostly is, has a blind eye to questions about race and um, uh, ethnic differences in general. And so it's how do we help out uh, poor working class people who are struggling, but mainly like how do we help uh, you know, white working class people who are struggling? And uh, the concerns about race are, are, are downplayed or even uh, sometimes um, people are, are hostile to them. And then there's a change, a transformation in um, uh, the, the left liberal ideology um, that starts to sort of take on early in the 20th century. So you see tra uh, uh, traces of it you know, as early as the 1920s, um, and it starts to become pretty uh, clear in the 1930s. And so really what I would characterize that is there's a debate among liberals in the early part of the 20th century about uh, how to think about uh, race and inclusion in general. And of course, then this also comes into thoughts about um, certainly gender, and then also um, you know, other uh, forms of difference as we move forward. But mainly race and gender are the first ones that are important. Um, and the people who want to be inclusive on race and gender, they win that fight. And so liberalism then, uh, by this middle of the 20th century, is uh, binding together both um, an interest in sort of economic justice and helping out those who are struggling economically and racial and uh, so gender and identity justice in some way, inclusion of different kinds of people. And that is then becomes part of what it means to be liberal. And it's pretty well in place by the 1950s. Of course, the Democratic Party is the party that is closest to um, that ideology, but they don't adopt all of that quite so quickly, in part because uh, the folks who are the most opposed to um, you know, civil rights movement and desegregation are also in the Democratic Party. And so the ideology ends up with having a friction with the party coalition. And I think the tracing out of that friction and the resolution of that friction is basically the story of the last 50 to 60 years. So that is a fascinating thing. And I'd like to stay on it for a second, because one of the things that I've sort of noticed the more that I've dug into historical research is that everybody has an ideology, right? And and any politician will have a permutation on an ideology that either can take it in, in one way or in another, or one way or another. But ultimately, the what we understand as the personality of these parties are guided by the politicians that can win. And and that is, is ultimately the, the big struggle for the Democratic Party, at least as I understand it, is that, yes, you have all these Dixiecrats in the South, but ultimately the Democratic Party only becomes the party that we know it now because there are civil rights uh, pushing politicians that can actually get the job done and get elected over and over again. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's also, you know, it had, had the, uh, the more civil rights oriented Northern, mostly Democrats not been uh, successful. Um, I think the ideology may have continued to push on yeah. things because as people change their minds, they start to care a lot about things. And of course, politicians like they need to get elected, but they also need to, um, you know, build a, a organization, and that means uh, an organization of people who are committed to their uh, their election. And those people you have to appeal to too. And so maybe nobody, no voter, really cares much about some of these issues. But the people who are volunteering for campaigns and who are making calls, those people do care. And so you have to appeal to those folks as well. And so 
uh, those folks are more likely to be ideological. The mass of public is not. Yeah. Um, and so then you have to you know triangulate. This is the ideology that my activists want. This is the the message that we want to pass. But at the same time, we need to reach out to these other. Uh, voters who maybe don't see things that way. And so I now need to craft this mixture that has an ideological uh, sort of kernel to it. But then the coalition that's on top of it uh, could be um, sometimes quite different. That's interesting because, uh, you know, I I guess my my question would be, do you think that that politicians who are winning ultimately, if, if it is an ideological wave, that even if somebody loses early on that eventually just the, 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 there are groundswells of support that will eventually find a champion, whether or not is the first or second or third person to try. I mean, I think to some degree, yes. Right. And the, we, you know, we haven't talked about the conservative movement, but the yeah. the story on the conservative side is a really good illustration of this. Okay. So, you know, the evolution of cons- conservatism is sort of reacts, you know, is, is in interacting with what um, is happening on the on the liberal side. Um, a lot of you know conservatives are like they, they want things to uh, the, the stay the same and maintain the um, the power arrangements that exist and don't want to see ma- massive and, uh, and especially on uh, sort of hard to predict changes and disruptions to it. Um, and so then as uh, liberals become the party, both of economic um, reform and, and e- uh, equality, but also uh, social and racial and, and uh, gender equality, then the people who are opposed to those things end up being more, you know, uh, uh, or seeing common ground. And so there is a reaction, an ideological reaction that is what shapes conservatism. And I think most people trace the modern conservative movement to the late 1940s, which is exactly the same time that the uh, liberal coalition is gelling. Um, and that movement takes off and it starts to get some traction, especially in the 1950s. Um, I like to focus on uh, William F. Buckley, who really tied together both the um, religious conservative uh, elements um, of, you know, we should try to do what is, you know, has, has been proven and tested as, as a, a good models of society through uh, his, his religious views, um, and also a you know, sort of free market econ- economics. And so his book, God and Man at Yale, is literally about those two parts of, of conservatism. Um, and that movement takes off, and it's in moving pretty well and gelling in, uh, in the 50s. Um, and they try to uh, nominate presidential candidates and elect uh, um, people to the uh, other offices that are consistent with that. Uh, Goldwater is one of the first people that we look at. Goldwater doesn't win. In fact, he loses big, and we think he loses big in part because he was seen as very ideological. But to get Goldwater nominated, conservatives had to sort of take over the Republican Party all around the country. And when they did that, they then continued to have influence and control over the the Republican Party. And so um, not much later, they're in a position where they can nominate Ronald Reagan, who is uh, also steering the party in that more conservative direction. And I think you know, there's you know, been uh, a continual um, uh, evolution of the Republican Party in that direction. Since Reagan, Newt Gingrich is a big step in that direction. And then, sure. I mean, I think uh, Trump obviously is, is changing what it means to be conservative, but he's also moving, again, that, uh, that trajectory. So I think you can lo- lose like Goldwater did and still win later. But the other part of your question, though, is like, well, does that just make that it mean that it's inevitable? And the Republicans help illustrate this part, too, which is that they're, the way that I'm describing this is just sort of like, well, the ideologies evolve and then they take off, which is how I argue it in the book. But, of course, there's feedback in the other direction, too. And so when politicians are successful, then the ideology or the elements of the ideology that they 
favor are going to get more of a hearing and are going to become more uh, influential. And so it's not just a one-way influence from ideas to policy platforms or anything like that. It's very much an interaction uh, and and feedback back and forth. Yeah, that's – Certainly something that uh, I, I've, I've really kind of wrestled with, because if you look at that Goldwater example, uh, yes, he's definitely a reaction to Nixon in 60, but also he's running against LBJ, who is a capable politician taking over for a popular president that was just murdered in traumatic fashion. Right. Yes. Absolutely. So it's like uh, uh, when when we talk about like, OK, well, well, Goldwater, America was not ready for Goldwater's ideology and he loses and he loses big. Uh, uh, there is such a fascinating element of like, well, winners write the history and and ultimately who knows what Goldwater would have done against maybe a, 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 a JFK who had not been assassinated or uh, if, if JFK had selected a less, uh, less capable vice president that that seemed less uh, uh, ready to take the position. There, there's so many fascinating different little ways that it could have it could have worked out. Sure, sure, and I mean, I, th- I think that speaks to the, the sort of the power of the of the coalition that conservatism was defining. That you know, even though they lost, they lost for reasons that weren't about the coalition itself, and so the coalition stuck with it and they kept pushing and kept kept pushing. And the same way that you know, if uh, you know, if the Democrats in 2020 uh, nominate a you know more progressive you know pro- uh, candidate, I mean, certainly the 2016 election was, I mean. Clinton isn't isn't viewed as especially progressive, but the platform she ran on is certainly one of the most progressive the Democratic Party has had in in, in at least several decades. Um, and that isn't going to you know the fact that she loses is not suddenly taint the idea that yeah. she should move in this direction. And if somebody loses twenty twenty, that won't either. The general leftward drift of the Democratic Party of the last decade or so, which is a little bit different from the change earlier on. Um, isn't going to stop just because some candidates lose. It might people will make arguments. Oh, they need to be more moderate or something. Yeah. Um, but and we need to be a little more electable. But the general desire of political uh, activists to want the policies that they want isn't going to go away. So there is obviously a lot of talk now about where our parties are and if they're shifting, you know, uh, too fast or too far. Historically, is this something that is more chaotic than a an average? Let's say the average of party drift one way or another. Um, I think, if anything, it's probably less chaotic than uh, than we, we usually see. In part because the two parties are so well defined by some kind of coherent ideology, which has not always been the case. Right. And so um, before the civil rights movement, the Democratic Party, you know, it had this ideological core of, of uh, liberalism as it was defined then. Um, but it ha- also had uh, the most um, racially uh, conservative uh, people in the party. And in fact, many of those racially conservative people were also uh, conservative on economic issues. They were not so comfortable with labor movements, especially if labor movements were uh, inclusive of, of black workers. But but aside from that, they were very worried about communism and the like. So you have uh, you have the co- the conservative coalition in congressional voting in that period, and so the Democratic Party of the 1950s is basically two parties, um, and it's fighting uh, within itself uh, over and over again. And then eventually this gets resolved. You still have a similar story in the Republican Party between the sort of more uh, um, core. Uh, conservative, um, say, Taft elements in the 50s and then those sort of more modern Eisenhower elements. And if you go back through history, you can always find these kind of cleavages 
in the late 1800s, the Republican Party is, barely has a coherent ideology at all. It's really a sort of a st- something that's stitched together uh, of uh, attitudes about um, Reconstruction and attitudes about um, trade and, and uh, views on, on uh, silver and um, monetary policy and these things. And there's different factions within the party, and it's you know splintering in, in different directions. Um, and that's just a very common phenomena in uh, in party politics. Um, we have factions now. I think we always will because uh, yeah, our parties have to be sort of big tent um, parties. But um, the difference between the say moderate Joe Biden element in the uh, Democratic Party and the Elizabeth Warren element in the Democratic Party is microscopic compared to the yeah. difference between Northern and Southern Democrats in the 1950s. Do you think it'd be fair to say that that at that point, uh, parties were there more just for organization and the party didn't necessarily have a hard-coded ideology candidates did or factions did, and then they would battle to see who would drive the car that term? Um, I mean, I think to some degree, yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the political scientist Sunquist has this nice uh, metaphor where he talks about parties as being terrain that you fight over, and so different groups would yeah. actually be fighting over the party. And then once you win the the, the standard bearer, you could get to be the presidential candidate, or you uh, win um, uh, control of, of a number of seats in, with that party in Congress, then you get to, to drive the party in that direction. And I think I think that is. Um, that is uh, has been true. I don't know that it means that they're not parties and there. There's no ideological coherence. Like there has been something that the parties differed on to some degree. There has been uh, some some trends uh, in um, you know, differences over the role of the of government, the um, strength and importance of, um, uh, of you know business versus and, and trying to strengthen business and doing what's best for, for business and being you know concerned about uh, workers or farmers and so forth. I mean, there has been some broad trends. And if you look over the course of their platforms, you know, there's coherence. So it's not like it's just a complete uh, mess. Sure. But I do think that um, uh, generally speaking, the coherence among the parties um, is with, internally within the party is it may be um, at its high point now. It certainly is one of its high points now. Well, yeah, because now the can the, you know both the Democratic and the Republican Party have very well defined brands. Like you know, mm-hmm. if a Republican shows up on television, you can infer so much more just by reading the word Republican or the word Democrat than I think you probably could in the past. Why do you think that is? Well, I I kind of want to think that there's there's something. Uh, desirable about that arrangement in the sense that as a party, you know, you're trying to have a brand. You're trying to say, this is what we stand for. And this is what we should try to, why you should try to vote for us. I mean, the one of the things that's great about parties as opposed to say voting for just a a candidate is that, you know, a party is supposed to be about a platform. It's difficult to make it be about just a set of ideas because politics is messy. And so it's not just, this is what you want to do, but what are you going to prioritize and how are you going to do the things that you're going to do? But it's still the case that the party should have some kind of a brand. Otherwise, why, why do I decide how to vote for one way or another? Of course, most citizens don't really care that much about the, the nuances of the ideological brand. And so the brand can have uh, other elements. It can be, well, this is the party that um, was uh, had this leader that I really liked. I was really a big fan of Roosevelt or I was a really big fan of Kennedy. And so that's why I like this party. I don't really know what they stand for. And that can be uh, um, a lot what it is for a lot of people. But the more coherent it is, 
the more traction it's going to have for more people. So I think there's sort of something a little bit natural about that. At the same time, um, politics is uh, is complicated, and and there's and people are complicated. There's so many cross-cutting cleavages in uh, in the society that it's unlikely that you could find two parties that would perfectly represent the differences between uh, different groups. What seems to be the case now, and um, uh, Lily Mason is a political scientist at Maryland, has a really nice book on this, uh, is that the identities that voters have um, are more sorted in a line so that there's one set of identities that's associated with the Democratic Party and one set that's associated with the Republican Party. And there's not a lot of people that have sort of uh, cross-cutting identities that say, well, part of my identity says I should be a Republican and part should say that I'm a, uh, a Democrat. Obviously, there are people who are like that, but the way in which the, um, our, our identities have been crafted is so connected to the political cleavages that um, there's not a lot of uh, um, room for big factions, um, uh, big disagreements within the parties. There still are disagreements, but we've kind of sorted our our political identities anyway into these two big camps. So if we talk about the brands or we talk about the, like the definition of the parties, I think very obviously for the way that you just spelled out, there are advantages to it. The question that I would have is back then, uh, it's not that they didn't see the advantages is that they disagreed on exactly what the brand would be. Uh, is there any kind of inflection point where either because of media or just the political realities at the time that there was just a settling on? No, this means this. Um, I mean, I think that the, there's a number of things that have, have happened. Partly, I, I really do think that there's sort of a natural tendency towards organization around uh, um, politics. And so so that, uh, you know, lots of fragmented views will eventually start to gel and people have a tendency to form a coalition us against them. And so, you know, and then, you, well, then what happens is there's a disruption. Something shocks that. A new yeah. issue comes along that uh, that has been suppressed or that, uh, has um, or that just wasn't uh, relevant, and then suddenly becomes relevant or t- becomes less suppressed. So race was the big issue in, in the U.S. For a long time, we had this main divide that was about sort of class and economic uh, issues that was emerging. And meanwhile, racial politics cross-cut it, and um, but it was being suppressed. And then when it was ce- ceased to be suppressed as, a, as an issue that could be people were fighting over, then you had these two different ways of organizing things. So am I going to be fighting uh, over economic issues or am I going to be fighting over, over racial uh, issues? And that might put you in a place where you're on one side according to one issue and a different side according to a different issue. Um, I think where we are right now is that we don't have as many of those big cross-cutting issues um, partly because of the way in which they've been organized by, through media and so forth. Um, I think a big factor is the nationalization of politics and the nationalization of the media. So it used to be that politics, you know, we always say all politics is local, and it, it still is to a great degree. But um, what is local politics is now generally the same issues that we used to, that we fight about at the national uh, level. Uh, Dan Hopkins has a really nice book on, on this. Um, and that kind of um, nationalization means that uh, it's. Uh, everyone's sort of on the same page everywhere. And so there's less likely to produce uh, politicians that are representing wildly different politics, you know, politics of a different place, because it's all the same across the country. So several different uh, trends, I think, that are reinforcing and leading us to have this sort of uh, two poles in our politics. 
there seems to be a lot of anxiety these days about the tribalization of politics that, that people are are more willing, no matter what uh, uh, evidence might be presented in front of them, to gather around, uh, you know, circle the wagons for their own team and and push on no matter what. Do we have any evidence to say that that's the case? Well, I think we have some evidence to say that people do tend to um you know, people tend to seek out evidence that is uh, reinforcing what they think. Um, they tend to be more likely to listen to evidence that is reinforcing uh, what they what they think, especially when it's uh, when when they know that the issues are political. Um, it's not that people cannot be persuaded by other evidence. There's a fair. There's, there's actually a lot of evidence that suggests that you can persuade people um, to move against whatever their expectations uh, are. Uh, if you if you can give them information to them, but the way we usually give information is not here's a, some unbiased information. It's usually um, here's a bunch of uh, information that you know you're going to agree with because you agree with me, and and it's in your best interest to to be, do this because the other side is terrible, right? And so we have this framing, which is how people talk, and it's not I don't think unique to to this particular period right now that people are like this. Um, so the fact though that the 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 party coalitions are sort of now organized around these two poles means that the way in which political communication works will, will reinforce that. And so you'll continue to get uh, this circle the wagons kind of behavior, not because everyone is committed to a two-party conflict, but because we're all limited human beings and we listen to, we take shortcuts and everything in our communications environment, plus those shortcuts reinforces the uh, the, the two um, camps uh, way of thinking, at least when it comes to political stuff. How much do you think our modern state now is affected by first, you know, uh, television media and, and the rise of national television media in uh, the latter part of the last century and now organization online via social networks and stuff like that? So I'm generally a skeptic of like big technological explanations for, for everything. I tend to think that, um, the need to for the need that ordinary people have to just organize their lives and to learn about things they're going to they're going to continue to go out and get what they want and they're not tend, they don't tend to be um you know highly influenced by the information that that uh that's just in the environment in sort of broadly speaking because most people don't pay that much attention i mean like people yeah. like people who are listening to this podcast and you and i we like we probably pay a lot of attention to politics and so we <laughs> yeah. see it all that way most people most people are not so I tend to be skeptical of that kind of explanation i'm also skeptical of that explanation from the elite perspective because i think that politicians their their game has not changed they still want to to build a coalition that could win elections and they still want to build coalitions that could pass legislation um and and win uh, uh policy fights and so they still need to do the same things that they always needed to do but it is the case that you know a big part of all that is the way in which information flows, and we know that um, when you have two-sided information flows, you've got both a yes and a no um, story, and you have layered on top of that signals about which one you're supposed to listen to, and those signals connect to people's political identities. It's going to lead us to this kind of this kind of place. So, um, and then so give, if that's the, if that's right, then a social media that allows you to um, seek out people who are similar and that allows you to send subtle signals about what your political affiliation is on those messages will tend to give this, uh, have give this consequence, this effect. And there's a number of people who've done, uh, who've been doing studying stuff more directly on the sort of micro foundations of that. And, you know, they find some counterintuitive things about, you know, people do 
they do listen to other, the other side off more often than we think and the like. But the uh, average effect across everything still seems to be um, a reinforcing of this uh, um, political conflict uh, way of viewing things. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 with you in general. I, I I do tend to be skeptical that there is some you know ghost in the machine that's directing us mm-hmm. to do one thing or the other, but there is some element of uh you know th- there being a, a shift in exactly what something like a like a Facebook platform or another uh, a platform mm-hmm. where where you are being fed by way of of them understanding your profile and understanding what you normally click on and read you're constantly going to be fed more of that and and I do wonder I mean it might be a little bit too neat to say like okay well if people are constantly reinforcing exactly what they want and there is more content than ever that will reinforce it in exactly the way that you want that that might have some uh, role in us kind of uh, drifting more and more into our own camps. Now, I, I think I, I'm. I find that I find that plausible. I think there's also a, a slightly different phenomena that that I think plays into it. It's a little bit analogous to what had happened in the sort of the 60s and 70s with the opening up of um, presidential nominations to uh, more um, other uh, groups. One of the things that we, they found was that. Like what we would we argue in our book about presidential nominations is, yeah, party um, you know parties had to be opened up to now a new group of of activists and the like. They still did what they did before, which was coordinate and try to shape uh, things and the like. But the kinds of people who were able to to participate in that new system were different, because you know before unions were really powerful because you they, they would do the on the ground organization. But now that you're trying to run a campaign in states, uh, a media campaign, um, people who are you know have leisure time to volunteer and, and join campaigns, they're going to be amplified. And, and so there's that kind of phenomenon. I think something similar is happening with the with uh, media in general, where it used to be that there were a lot of filters through uh, media organizations, uh, you know, well-established newspapers, the television network uh, news organizations, and they had strong journalistic uh, uh, norms not those norms that not even always be um, perfect, but whatever, but they had them and they followed this norm about what you were supposed to do. And so there was a lot of filtering and, you know, conspiracy theory stuff didn't get uh, a lot of play. And when it did, it would get quickly debunked and, um, and so forth. Whereas now uh, the media environment is full of people who want to spread stories that are, you know, fake news. And there's not a lot of ways to, to prevent that because you can't just say, Oh, well, this story was not on, uh, you know, the Washington Post.com, which is a re- respectable organization. So I'm not going to pay attention to it because people don't read that. Instead, it's being spread, not going to a website. There's spread, it's being spread on social media and so forth. Then add that to the partisan uh, way in which the particular stories might get might flow, and you're going to end up with, uh, I think, a different uh, different outcome, different different sources of information that are being injected into the uh, into the sort of media environment. Indeed. Uh, Well, awesome, awesome, awesome talk. My guest has been Hans Knoll. He is an associate professor of government at Georgetown University and the author of Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America, as well as the co-author of The Party Decides Presidential Nominations Before and After Reform. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Hans. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Politics! And with that, we're going to bring her on down into a Huey. We are done for the week. Thank you, everybody. Merry Christmas to all that celebrated. I know we're still 
in the thick of Hanukkah. So Mazel Tov to all of our Jewish PX3 listeners. It is a time of relaxation, a time to be around with family, or quite possibly a time to be alone and listen to political podcasts. And if that is indeed your celebration, then you, my friend, I want to be with the most because no one else is listening to this. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. And that is Steven, Japan Droid, Squid's Mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, Fred. If you want to join their ranks, head on over to TechPoliticsSeriously.com. Remember, Raise the Dead, episode four, out now. You want to read all the transcripts right now? Head on over to RaiseTheDeadPodcast.com. Get the ebook, huh? All right. That's about it. Till next time, you can always email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Oh, God damn it. Shut up, Alexa. Sorry for triggering all of your Alexas. I said it again. I'm sorry. I apologize. It's been a long week. All right, there we go. Uh, 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 Some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And still more, man, they are talking about politics as we speak. But this is the only show that talks about all three. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>